today on Ag News Daily. That depressed prices, cattle prices, which ultimately hurts that economic sustainability. And so even now we're just starting to get worked out of that and get it back to where um, hopefully the prices are improved and the, the profit margins are a little bit better for our cow-calf producers. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined once again today by Ashton Carr. And I'm back in Iowa today, Ashton. And it's a little bit warmer here than it was in Wisconsin. Well, I'm glad that you're thawing out there, Delaney. But unfortunately, it's still like mid-70s, mid to low 70s every day here in Texas. So I'm honestly ready for some fall weather. Or I say fall, winter weather. (laughs) Well, we haven't any snow yet, so I'm actually not on board for that yet. I don't know if we'll actually see snow this year in Texas. It's always a gamble. Yeah, I suppose that would be true. It's certainly not here in Iowa, but Ashton, I want to remind folks that today we, of course, are sponsored by DPH Biological. To unharness your soil's fertility to maximize yield, visit dphbio.com. And Ashton, right off the top here, I kind of want to dive into today's a little bit of a snoozer when it came to the WASD report, which, as we talked to a couple analysts now, was really what the trade was expecting. We really didn't see any change in production, balance sheets, etc., on the corn and soybean side of the things, and just slight changes on the U.S. wheat side of things. However, we did see that the USDA increased Australia's wheat crop by two and a half million metric tons, while also increasing Russia's crop by one million metric tons, which again isn't a huge number, but they also did bump up Ukraine's corn crop and made some slight changes here and there to uh, China's crop. So all in all, really not a very exciting YZ report today, which again was what we expected to see. And January is really the big one now. They've really put a lot of pressure to say what's going to happen come January time. And that remains to be seen. You know, Delaney, I'm going to follow that kind of snoozer up with an interesting piece of news that we saw come through earlier today. And I think that I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I am a fan of true crime. So when the worlds of true crime and agriculture kind of come together, it's a Very interesting for me, to say the least. So this piece of news comes out of Brazil as around 300 Brazilian police descended on the indigenous Serena Reservation earlier today. They arrested nine suspects in a double murder inquiry linked to a dispute over renting tribal land to soybean farmers. This is kind of a political issue that kind of really just came to head here back in mid-October, as these deaths occurred among a group of around 20 ostracized members of the Kangang tribe, which lives there on the reservation. The way the story goes, these protesters had gathered to speak out against the community's leadership, which had struck a deal allowing farmers to grow soybeans and other crops on the reservation. According to the police, they were surrounded and surprised by an armed group of dozens of supporters linked to the leadership. 
The suspect shot at and killed two of the demonstrators before fleeing. So nobody has been charged yet, but they did arrest those nine people who are linked to this issue. That is a little bit of a true crime slash ag podcast mix there, isn't it? It certainly is. And I know that it's a little bit dark that I enjoy listening to true crime stories, but I think it's rather interesting, especially when it comes to what's going down there in Brazil, when it comes to indigenous lands and, you know, farmers having access to that. It's a a weird issue going on down there. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way, Ashton. And here's an interesting piece of news I read last night, which I thought was a little bit odd in itself. Quite a few farm groups and farmers have asked the U.S. Department of Justice to investigate whether recent spikes in fertilizer prices are attributable to market manipulation. Uh, A group by the name of Family Farm Action Alliance, which I've got to be honest, I've never heard of until this article came out, sent a letter to Congress with more than 6,000 farmers and rural members that are asking them to look into this and, you know, are alleging essentially that because of this alarmingly high spike in prices we've seen, perhaps there's something more to be said here aside from just market normal, you know, not normal, but market issues that we've seen here due to COVID, hurricanes, energy prices, etc. Haven't really gotten a response out of COVID yet, or excuse me, haven't really gotten a response out of the Department of Justice yet. And They have not commented on this request, but I did think that was kind of an odd but interesting piece of news to see will we have that happen. Well, Delaney, I'm going to move forward, kind of switch tracks here and talk about automation and meat plants. That was kind of the theme of our Tech Tuesday episode this week. So I thought that this story was pretty timely as we're seeing ag tech really adapt to industry needs here. But we saw that Tyson Foods plans to spend more than $1.3 billion to increase automation in meat plants over the next three years. There's a couple of things that are really to cause this. Um, The articles that I've been looking at pertaining to this announcement talk about labor shortages and concerns over COVID-19. It has, of course, been reported that meat processors have been unable to find enough workers for almost the past two years now due to labor market issues and health concerns because of the pandemic. So Tyson is expecting to boost production and reduce labor costs by expanding automation with cumulative savings of more than $450 million projected by fiscal year 2024. They're, of course, going to increase the use of machines rather than, you know, people labor to do the deboning process of chicken, which is one of its most labor intensive positions at Tyson. Uh, And it's kind of, I feel like a double edged sword here because half of me is pro ag tech and excited that we have the ability to use these kinds of things. But the other half of me is a little bit worrisome of the jobs that are going to be lost due to this advancement. Yeah, you you mentioned, you know, some of that advancement. And I know you chatted with Brittany Wondercheck last week about Marvel Technologies. I also caught up with her a little bit yesterday on the phone. And it's just interesting to see maybe we lose some jobs. But for the most part, I think they're trying to do things to help with some of the labor issues to help cut down on human error and 
human injury. So it's really an interesting position that we're kind of in here. But before we get any further, Ashton, I wanted to make a quick mention again to last week's Tech Tuesday episode with Mick Messman, president and CEO of DPH Biologicals. Last week, we talked about a lot of things with Mick, including the company's new biofertility program and platform TerraTrove, which refined across millions of acres, TerraTrove works in broad acre applications to improve soil structure while manufacturing plant nutrition. TerraTrove combines microbes, plant extracts, and algae to offer the most complete bio biofertility solutions available to unharness soil fertility and maximize yield. Visit dphbio.com to learn more. And Ashton, as we continue to jump into more news here, another piece of legislative related news that caught my eye today, Congress is apparently wrapping up some legislation before the end of the year. And on Wednesday, the House passed four bills that the House Agriculture Committee had urged the full House to approve, including overwhelming support for an extension of the Livestock Mandatory Price Reporting Act and the creation of a library of cattle contracts, which of course was sparked largely by the ongoing issues and ongoing alleged price fixing that we've seen across the protein, but more specifically the beef sector. And this bill extends the legislation through September of 2022, providing more time essentially just for Congress to consider broader reforms proposed by lawmakers from both parties. Well, Delaney, really the last that I heard about what was going on up on the hill when it came to some of these bills and acts and pieces of legislation was that we were maybe at a standstill here as we're wrapping up the year. So I'm glad that there is some movement, getting some traction, of course, there. And another thing that we saw come from the U.S. House today or another act that was passed was the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. This piece of legislation is designed to help alleviate delays in shipping U.S. goods to foreign markets like Asia, which has been difficult to supply as American producers are struggling with high fees and empty containers being rushed back to China. I feel like I'm seeing more and more every day on social media, people talking about supply chain issues, cargo issues. So I'm excited to see what this piece of legislation brings here, but the bill is now going on to the Senate. But Delaney, that's really the only other piece of news that I had here. But I want to go back, of course, to DPH Bio since they are the sponsor of today's episode. So folks, if you're looking for an alternative to starter fertilizer, DPH Biologicals offers a competitive alternative for broad acre crops without sacrificing yield. Refined across millions of acres, Teratro combines microbes, plant extracts, and algae to offer the most complete biofertility solution available. To unharness soils, fertility to maximize yield, visit dphbio.com to learn more. Like I said there, Delaney, that's really all I had to talk about today, so I'm ready to get into the markets if you are. I certainly am as well, Ashton. And, you know, heading into today's WASDE report, we didn't see too much excitement in the markets. Corn was trying to fight a little bit higher. Soybeans were definitely trading lower. And we saw that price action pretty much continue through here after the WASDE report was released for today. Although corn actually did finish mixed on the day. March corn up four and a half cents, ending at 591 and three quarters. The D's down two and a half cents, closing at 552 and a quarter. 
Hopping over into the soybean pits today, we actually saw them push higher following the Wazi report. You know, they traded lower immediately following the report and seemed to trade through that news pretty easily today, finishing higher with the January contract, adding three and a half cents, closing at 1264 and a half. The March up three and a half as well to close at 1272 and a quarter. Wheat pushed lower today on news, like I mentioned there, of increased production estimates in Australia, in Russia, and here in the United States. March Chicago wheat down 17 and three quarters cents today to close at 776 and three quarters. The March down 14 and three quarters, closing the day at 781 and three quarters. Hopping over to look at the livestock markets today, we saw mostly weakness in the cattle complex, aside from January feeders, which closed 67 and a half cents higher, ending at 164.07 and a half. March down 80 cents, closing at 165.07 and a half. And looking at live cattle today, that weakness bled through again from yesterday's trade as the February contract shed 87 and a half cents, closing at 137.80. The April down 65 cents, closing at 141.22 and a half. And in lean hogs, we saw green today on the screen as the February contract added a dollar seventy-seven and a half, closing at seventy-seven eighty-two and a half. The April up a dollar sixty-two and a half, closing at eighty-three oh five. Lastly, wrapping things up here with the Class 3 dairy milk futures. January down a penny today to close at 1977. The February down four cents, closing at 1980. Ashton, without further ado, let's kick it over to part two of the sustainability panel from the NAFB convention. Uh, Will Robinson, Brownfield Ag News. Uh, my question is, how have recent events like the COVID pandemic and supply chain issues impacted animal sustainability? Yeah, thank you, Will. I'll take that one. And um, as much as I hate to rewind the clock, let's go back to March 2020. And I would say it this way, the supply chain did bend, but it did not break. But it did bend. And so how did it in, uh, impact sustainability? I was saying this earlier to someone, for the first time, some Americans witnessed something they never witnessed, and they went into a grocery store to buy their preferred protein, and it wasn't there. You take bacon away from people, they get angry, <laughs> right? And and so that was, I think, an eye-opening experience that told you know people their whole lives, so there's always a plethora, it's always there, and then I can just go get it. But But what was the bottleneck, right? What was the challenge? And let's go back to this social piece for a minute. In our case, there was plenty of pigs available to run through the, the packing and processing system. Plenty of pigs. Think of it a bow tie effect. Plenty of pigs on this side. There was a plethora of folks, both domestically and internationally, wanting the product. They were ready, willing, and able to buy. That's the other side of the bow tie. Where was the knot? The knot was in the middle at the processing packing facilities, and it dealt with people. That was the bottleneck because it was a global pandemic, public health concern, and we had to first take care of the folks, right, the people that are in our business. And so that bottleneck of a lack of a workforce running those animals from a live production system to your favorite pork chop of choice created the challenge. And we had to step back as an industry and say, we've done some really neat things here. We've created a just-in-time delivery system from the farm to the fork. Right From the finishing barn to the pork chop, a just-in-time, it's there for you, fresh and available. But the people component, 
of a global pandemic created a sustainability issue on the retail shelves that then let people think about, ooh, the trust and confidence in modern-day agriculture, now I question, right? Now I question. And so that came with, uh, I think, an excitement because people started to recognize I appreciate the farmer because it's not here. But it also created some questions in their mind that said, hmm, is the modern-day food system the right system? And that's come with a different dialogue and a different set of challenges. Any other questions? I might tack on to that question just a little bit there. And, you know, many of the things that we saw in beef were similar to what we saw in pork. And like you described, there were lots of pigs available. There were lots of beef cattle available. Um, And so we saw those cattle out in the countryside. We had that backlog. Those couldn't move through the packing plant. And so certainly that depressed prices, cattle prices, which ultimately hurts that economic sustainability. And so even now we're just starting to get worked out of that and get it back to where um, hopefully the prices are improved and the the profit margins are a little bit better for our cow-calf producers. So certainly that there increased prices, you know, that hurts the consumer in the end when they're trying to buy that product. So you had that impact to not only the economic side, but then certainly the people side, um, as Brett mentioned, and it has created a heightened awareness around that social side, the human element of all of our production. But I would say one of the the probably pretty neat things that we can think about out of this is with that beef animal, because it is a ruminant animal, we were able to slow those cattle down in their growth and to move a lot of cattle back out into the countryside, keep them on grass, have them growing at a slower rate. And so that way, yes, it was a bottleneck and has been a bottleneck, but we're able to slow that down and at the end of the day have less waste because we are able to keep those animals to where they could ultimately move through the supply chain and end up on a on a consumer's plate, and none of them had to be wasted because they had to be slaughtered right then. And I think that's pretty huge because when we look at even just environmental impacts, food waste plays a, a massive part in that. And so from some of our forthcoming life cycle assessment work, It's estimated that almost 20% of food is wasted, and if we were to able to reduce food waste, cut that in half, down to 10% roughly, we would see an improvement in all of our environmental impact categories by 11 to 13%. And so that's pretty big. And so when I think about how we were able to slow those cattle down and not waste them, I think that's a success even out of the COVID pandemic. Question? Uh, yeah, my name's Murphy, Murphy in the Morning, KSJB Radio in Jamestown, North Dakota. Uh, I'm a city slicker. I don't know why they sent me down here, but uh, so I, this might be a dumb question for you. But uh, what do you what do you guys think about? I know we should always shop local, right? Uh, go to the farmers, go to the local places, all this. But with everything being online now, you can get Omaha Steaks to Seattle, you know, wherever, you know. Um, How do we combat shopping local compared to everything that's available today? Yeah, go ahead. Mariah, it's almost like a trend trend to uh, a mindset, a a local mindset, but the trend is online and buying and shopping and such. How, How do you see that moving ahead? 
Certainly there are a lot of benefits to buying local and supporting the people that you know. They're raising and growing the products um, and making those, and that's admirable. And I think there's definitely places for that. But I think also have to keep in mind that just because it's local doesn't mean that it's, quote, the most sustainable. Um, because it depends on how you grade that. And so, for instance, if we're looking at the greenhouse gas emissions or that footprint, um, and we think about, as Brett mentioned, just how efficient our supply chains are and that we have that just-in-time delivery. We're able to to deliver that beef product or that pork product on a semi into a Walmart or into a Costco or wherever it might be. And because we've done that and we've done that in mass together, the actual footprint of that product is much smaller than oftentimes some of this local product is where maybe we don't have as an efficient fleet of trucks driving around. And we have um, smaller operators with those older trucks that are making several loops several times a day rather than having an entire logistics team behind them that are helping to lower that. And so, yes, there's certainly the, the right time and the right place for local, but I think it should not be confused with that being absolutely the most sustainable option. Yeah, Mariah said it really good, but I want a radio show. Murphy in the morning. I like the sounds of that. So congratulations to you. And I would say, listen, City Slick or not, we're glad you're here. And it's important that you're here. And that's sometimes we get in trouble. We talk in the ag echo chamber. So I hope you enjoy your next 48 hours and feel free to engage with these folks. Mariah had the, the perfect response, in my opinion. And let me make it even more real for you. Hey, we believe in choice. Whether it's local beef or whether it's, you know, from down the road farther than you would consider local, we want you to buy beef, right? We want you to buy pork. And I'll make a, a real statement. We have a small operation where we do local. We do supply our customers from our small family farm with a local product. There's nothing wrong with that. But we also wake up and look ourselves in the mirror every day and say, we're not going to nourish the world off our small local operation. Right. And we we cherish those larger producers and we thank those larger producers. And there's room for everybody. The wonderful thing about the United States of America is that we have choice and we're not going to disparage each other, whether it's local or non-local, depending on how you define it. We're not going to disparage. We're more sustainable than you are. That's not the business that we're in. We're in the business to build trust and confidence in U.S. pork and beef and share that great story of the family farmer with anybody across the globe. You had about five minutes remaining. Any other questions? How do we work ahead? Um, in my household, we're not proactive. If I'm out of ketchup, I need to go buy ketchup. I don't have a backup ketchup bottle in the pantry. That's not a good mindset to be in. How are you as an industry trying to have a crystal ball? It's got to be tough. Look ahead. Be, be in front of everything. Mariah, how do you guys try and work at that from a beef perspective? So within the beef industry, there is something that's called the Beef Long Range Plan. And that's a group of, of industry folks who come together every five years and do try to look a little bit into that crystal ball. And they help to set the priorities for the beef industry to say to keep our protein at the center of our consumer's plate, what are those things that we need to address and we need to work on? And so from there, as a contractor to the beef checkoff, our job within specifically the sustainability research program is then to go look at that long-range plan and say, pull out the pieces that apply to us and to build a research roadmap. 
And so that's a process that we recently just undertook in this past year after the most recent long-range plan was released. And so, you know, we sit down and we hash it out, you know, and actually if you want to talk about hashing it out and trying to think about these things, it was it was in the middle of winter storm Uri down in Texas where I live, and I had no power. Then sometimes that's the greatest blessing because then you can turn everything off and you can really focus. And so that's what I did during Winter Storm Mary was to print out and have massive pieces of paper. And because we've surveyed industry folks and we got feedback from academics, from um, NGOs, as well as several of our industry partners and those in government giving us feedback on where do we as an industry, when we're thinking and we're looking five to ten years out, where do we need to be? So taking all of that, synthesizing that, holding that up to the long-range plan, trying to parse that down and say, where is it we need to head next? And so to put that down on paper, but then to take that back out, we have um, a group of advisors on an advisory board for us who are experienced in all areas of sustainability, and they really helped us to hone in on what those areas are that we need to focus on. So certainly um, the three areas, three pillars of sustainability, but digging deeper, but also how do those interconnect and so that we have um, that information that crosses over and so we find those wins that are win not just in one area, but in multiple areas. And so that's really how we've begun to approach um, that crystal ball and where do we look at five to ten years from now. All right, Brett, where's your crystal ball? Let's see it. Yeah, if I had it, I'd share it with you. Here's here's what we do, and we challenge our farmers every day. You know, there's working in the business and there's working on the business. And our farmers wake up every morning, we got pigs to feed, we got sows to breed, right? We've got trucks to manage, and that's in the business. But we're challenging our farmers and challenging ourselves as a staff to work on the business. And what does that mean? Lift your head up for just a moment and look three to five years out, Mariah, what could potentially be coming over the horizon. And take the time to focus, really read, really study, and say, okay, yes, the probability of that is this. You know, green, yellow, red, those types of things. It's hard. And every day is a challenge on the farm, and it will always be a challenge. And I would just say this. Some of our producers say, but, Brett, they keep moving the goalpost on us. And I say, and you're right. And they'll continue to move the goalpost because the modern-day eater, the modern-day customer's expectations get bigger and grander and will continue to grow. And if we're going to be relevant or sustainable, we've got to meet those expectations. Well, Delaney, personally, the sustainability session was one of my favorites, to be honest, because I think that we talked about some things that uh, were new to the sustainability conversation, which is kind of a surprise since that's really a big buzzword going around in agriculture right now. Yeah, it certainly is. And it's when you when you think about buzzwords, it's interesting to see how those change over time. You know, obviously, I wasn't around in the 70s or the 80s, but it would be interesting to see what buzzwords were back then and how those have evolved, just like sustainability is doing. You make some great points there, Delaney. Maybe we're going to have to have, you know, an older producer on that might be able to tell us about how buzzwords have changed over the course of the past couple of decades. But Delaney, if any of our listeners, of course, do want to stay tuned for our future conversations, they can do so at agnewsdaily.com or wherever they find their podcasts. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.